morning, friends. Very nice to be with all of you this morning. Uh, hey, I want to um, I want to start this morning talking a little bit about Roe v. Wade before we come to our our text. Uh, there's uh, for me there, there's a lot of joy in knowing that there's going to be fewer abortions in our country. Uh, also, I think it's a great moment for a lot of humility as well and sobriety. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, I, I wrote a pretty lengthy piece in our church email uh, back in May on this. I'm going to probably update it and then send it out again. Uh, I want to encourage you, uh, read it carefully, uh, whether you saw it before or not. Uh, look for that. I think it's, it's important for us to be thinking well about these things and to have good moral clarity around these things too. As, as believers, I think we are right to give thanks to God. Uh, because every life matters. The scripture is so clear about this that every life is important to God. Uh, we read about this in, among other places. I, I think of Galatians 3 and Colossians 3 where it talks about how in the family of God we acknowledge that there's neither male nor female, there's no slave or free, there's no, uh, no distinction between the races, the ethnicities. Every single life matters to God. And that includes life in the womb. The scripture is very clear about this in the way that it talks about the unborn, that that is a person, that is a life, and we give thanks when we see that life preserved. Uh, there's another piece of this too that, that uh, I think brings sort of the sobriety also that is appropriate to us as believers, and that's that inside of this, uh, there's also a, just a lot of grief in the country today as well. Approximately half the women in our country uh, feel as if an injustice has been directed towards them. And there's an appropriate sensitivity, I think, that comes inside of that. And there's a very important concern inside of that, too, that I, I think we do well to voice over and over again. And, and that's that for women at risk, and especially if we're thinking about the rural poor, so we think about many black and brown women, uh, this ruling is going to affect them in ways that are going to be incredibly difficult for them as well. And as believers, and hear this, as believers, if we consider ourselves to be pro-life, then we have to make sure that not just the lives of the unborn, but the lives of those women and the children that they will bear are on our radar as well. To be pro-life means to be pro-life. Every life. And when there are voices saying that that their lives are being overlooked, we as believers have to be attentive to that. It's true of the unborn. It's true of the already born. It's true of women who are at risk. And we have to be about all those. It cannot be reduced to a choice between. And that, that runs both directions too. I know uh, some who consider themselves maybe more pro-justice don't care that much about the unborn. That's no less appropriate than the reverse of that. If we are going to be people who are about life because God is about life, we have to be about all of life. Uh, one more thing to say here, and then I'll, I'll leave the, the rest to put in print, I suppose, and for, for future days. But um, just the question of who we are going to be inside of this in terms of our posture. Uh, no doubt one other thing that's going to result from this week is a, a fresh and terrible rift opening up in our culture wars. Who are you and I going to be inside of that? 
in the way that we interact with our neighbors, in the way that we interact or don't on social media, who are you and I going to be? Are we going to reflect the gentleness and the presence of Christ in our conversations? Are we going to be people of both grace and truth? Uh, friends, we need to be, and there's an opportunity inside of this, as our society grows more and more uncivil, for us to bring the spirit of Christ into our conversations. So can we be about that, about all these things? Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge today your love for all people. And we acknowledge too, and we do it with sorrow, that as your church in this country, we have a hard time doing that. We have a hard time being for the unborn and being for women. We have a hard time being for justice and being for the unborn. And God, we pray for your help in this. Give us moral clarity. Keep us from falling into the traps of choosing one or the other. God, may we be people who recognize and who reflect your heart for every person, every man, every woman, every child. And God, in this congregation, as we as a body of believers seek to help each other in this, we pray that you would walk with us, that you would give us wisdom and courage and strength. As the cultural forces around us try to press us into the world's mold, we pray that we would be shaped instead by your word and by your spirit. And God, we confess that this requires a strength that we do not have. We need you in this. So God, meet us in this. And God, in the, the days and weeks and months to follow, we pray that we in this church and in churches across America, that we would be caring uh, for women who are impacted by this ruling in negative ways, for children who are born into this world who may not be wanted or may be born into homes where there's not provision to care for them. God, may we be about them. And God, we pray uh, that in our conversation as well, that it would be seasoned with salt, that we would reflect your grace and your love. God, we need you for all this. And we pray it in Christ's name as a family together. Amen. This is from Matthew 18, 12 to 20. What do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven.
Again, truly I tell you, that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Thank you, Danielle. Well, friends, uh, this morning as we, uh, we go through this particular parable of Jesus, part of our series on stories that Jesus told, uh, I want to start with an old and cheesy joke. So, I, I love laughter before I started. That was fabulous. Just knowing that it's cheesy. So the old joke goes like this. There was this man, he was stranded on a desert island, uh, lived there utterly by himself until the day that he was rescued. People finally found him and they came and the rescuers are walking around, they're, they're seeing the little civilization he has built for himself. There's this fire, right? There's the shelter where he lives. They're looking at all this and they, they see a second shelter and say, oh, you've got a house here, there's only one of you. What's this other thing? He says, this is my church. I built this so I'd have a place where I can worship. And they're like, oh. Well, that's, that's great. That makes a lot of sense. And then they look past that and they see another little building and say, oh, what's that one? He says, oh, that's my old church. He <laughs> <laughs> says, I don't go there anymore. So <laughs> now here's the thing. Uh, this is, is a phenomenon of, of modern Western Christianity. There is a tremendous shuffling of the saints among churches. Uh, sometimes for, for good and significant reasons. Most of the time, not. And the number one reason why people find themselves in a new church and not their old church is because of conflict. It's because of conflict with another believer that's gone unresolved. Uh, and and that, that should be on our short list of reasons that are not good, uh, to seek out another fellowship. Uh, this, the story we're looking at in Matthew the story of, of this wandering sheep, and then it goes into an application with wandering believers. Uh, this is a story about God's heart for his people, that they would be connected to each other, that none of them would be lost. Uh, Luke tells the same parable in a different context, talking about unbelievers. It's a different audience, and he's talking to folks about uh, those who are outside the church, and that God desires that none of them be lost. And that's, Maybe we'll do that one in the series, too. But in this particular context, in Matthew 18, it's in a long section talking about how believers live with one another. And inside of that, Jesus tells this story comparing the wandering believer to a wandering sheep and highlighting God's heart that when somebody goes missing, God goes after that person. When somebody strays from the flock, God goes after that person. Uh, it's, it's easy for us, and it's, it's a mistake bordering on heresy, but it's easy for us in the modern West to think of my life with God and my involvement in the church as being separate. Biblically, there is no such separation. It would make no sense to any of the New Testament authors, to the early Christians, to think of one's life with God divorced from the life of the church. There is no such thing, biblically speaking. And God pursues us when we fall from that, when we're missing from that. God, in his love for us, pursues us. And the place we want to focus this morning 
is particularly on this matter of conflict. And it's, it's significant, I think, that Jesus goes directly from that example. And the first place he goes after that is into conflict and how that gets handled within the body of Christ. And uh, this is, uh, I, I would suggest to you, this is one of those places where we need significant instruction and we need significant spiritual help. Living with somebody who has hurt you is one of the most difficult things that we do in life. Having beef with another person and resolving that and going forward with them is so, so difficult. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Uh, he said, everybody thinks that forgiveness is a terrific idea right up until the point where they have someone they have to forgive. You feel that? God wants something better for us, and he invites us into that something better. Uh, Jesus gives us a bit of a road map here, and I want us to, to focus on his words. They, they are not easy, uh, but they are pretty clear. Uh, this is a thing where we will have to constantly lean on Jesus, seek his help, seek his strength, seek his wisdom. Uh, if we are to become the kind of people who are able to resolve conflict with one another and continue moving forward in fellowship. And can I tell you this too? Like, I've been a pastor for a minute or two now. One of the things I've consistently observed through the years is that Christians who enjoy a rich and a fruitful and a, a truly enjoyable Christian life are Christians who figure this out. Show me a believer who's switching churches every three to five years, I will show you a believer who has never matured. To enjoy the fruitful life that God has for us, this isn't optional, this is a must have. We have to learn how to do this. Think of it this way, if, if Jesus summed up all the commandments in this way, he said, okay, your job is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, we learn that second part, how to love your neighbor as yourself. I would say God's primary laboratory for us in that, perhaps outside of the family, is the church. We learn to live that out as we live together, as our toes get stepped on, and we learn to move forward together in that. When we short-circuit the process, we short-circuit our own growth, and we short-circuit our own joy. And Jesus invites us into something better. So, uh, how does Jesus say we should do this? What does it look like for us? Um, I, want to, uh, I want to read part of this again. I'll start with the sheep part, because I, I want us to feel this. It says, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away... Will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for that one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Now, you hear the heart in that? Can you feel God's concern, God's love for us? inside of that. God looks at us, right? And he sees a flock. He sees sheep among the most helpless of animals. Uh, and and he, he says, every one of these matters. He says, when one goes missing, I go after them. Each person is worth pursuing. Uh, and I know some of you have experienced that. Some of you ex have experienced the hound of heaven 
pursuing you, when you are one of those who has, has gone sideways, has gone astray. I've experienced that, and it's been a grace. Uh, and then these sheep, in the next frame, these sheep become little ones, uh, also helpless. And then in the next frame, they become brothers and sisters. Listen to, as the, the frame changes, what Jesus says here. He says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, the frame changes, but the compassion remains. And I think it's, it's really important that we read these verses in their context so that we don't miss that. Uh, because, after all, this passage ends with the possibility that a person would be removed from the church. And that, that is a, a painful possibility. Uh, and, and, yes, this is one of several places where the New Testament speaks about church discipline. And that is... That is actually a really important topic. It's not really what we're doing this morning, but it is really important. There, uh, think of it, if you will, as, as in our own bodies, if there is an infection there that will not be cured, you have to find a way to remove that or the rest of the body is damaged too. And the scriptures speak to the importance of that. But as you read this in its context of sheep and little ones and then brothers and sisters, uh, note here, friends, that that is not the goal. The goal of this passage is not about how to kick somebody out of a church. It's about how to keep them in. It's about how to mend things before they get to a point where they become unmendable. Reconciliation is the goal. The goal is to win them over, to bring the sheep back into the fold. Uh, in, in our life as a church, um, you know, we're 19 years old now as a church. Uh, we've engaged in this process of going to a brother and sister. Somebody has uh, more times than I could possibly count. Uh, it has to be in the hundreds. Uh, and I'm thankful in only one of those times in 19 years has it come to the removal of a person from the church. And, and even then it was, it was, I mean, after months and months of conversation and the whole leadership involved in it and consultation with our denomination, it's not a thing to be taken lightly because the goal is as best we are able to live at peace with everyone uh, and, to, uh, and to come to a place where we can be reconciled. So uh, how does Jesus say that we should go about this? How do we as imperfect people live in peace and in unity and enjoy with other imperfect people. Uh, here's what I want to do. I want to take Jesus' words here and I'm, I'm going to condense them into one awkwardly long run-on sentence and we'll kind of break down the pieces of that, yes? So here, uh, here's the sentence. Go to the other person in private and discuss the problem in order to reconcile. If needed, get help. There we go. This is Jesus' plan for reconciliation. It's not exactly rocket surgery. 
but it's hard. It's hard to do it in real life, yes? Uh, go to the other person in private and discuss the problem in order to reconcile. If needed, get help. Let's break this down. Okay, the first part, go. Go. Verse 15, Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go. Go to that person to discuss the problem for the purpose of reconciling. But it starts with go. It starts with initiative of the one who's feeling the separation in the relationship to do something about that and to proactively go and begin to mend what is broken. Now note here in our text, who is the person that is supposed to go? Right, the answer here is, is me. It's you. It's, it's the one who becomes aware that there is an issue. Right? And uh, now some of you, I can't be the only one, some of you, as you read this, one of the thoughts that you have is, wait a minute, they sinned against me. Why am I supposed to be the one who goes? They're the one who did wrong. They need to make the first move. They need to be the one to make this right. In fact, I'm going to stand right here until they do. I can wait all day. I will just, I'm going to wait. And when they figure out what they've done, then they can come to me. And then maybe we'll be able to make things right between us. But it's interesting, and it's very significant, isn't it, that Jesus says something different here. He says, if you realize that brother or sister has sinned against you, you go to them. Real-time story. So earlier this week, a uh, brother called me up, asked if I could get together for a cup of coffee, uh, asked if we could sit down and talk about something. I didn't know what the topic was. Um, and we did, and to my surprise, he shared about a way that I had hurt him, uh, that I wasn't aware of. Uh, was this a pleasant experience? No. Is it ever? No. But it was a gift. It was really a gift, because this is a brother that I love, and this brother loves me. And there is a barrier between us that I wasn't aware was there. And he was courageous enough and loving enough to sit down with me and say, hey, I need you to know about this thing. It hurt me. And it's become kind of an issue. Friends, can you see what a gift that is? Can you imagine for a second what a gift it might be to you? If somebody has beef with you and they are gracious and loving to come to you and bring that to you. Jesus says, go, you be the one to go, not because he's being mean. It's not because he doesn't have in mind your feelings as one who's been hurt. It's not because he doesn't care about the rights of a victim. He looks at you and he loves you. And he doesn't want you or the other person to become a lost, wandering sheep. And so he says, you need to go. We might say, well, what if they reject what I have to say? Well, we're coming to that part. 
But right now it's just go. Let me show you another interesting context where something similar comes up. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. It says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come back and offer your gift. Now, check this out. This is, this is super fascinating. In the first case, in Matthew 18, so you remember that somebody sinned against you. And Jesus says, in that instance, you go and start the process of making things right. In this instance, the, the reader is remembering that they sinned against somebody else. They're remembering, you know what? I have beef with this person. And in this case, they also are the one to go and to initiate the process of making things right. In other words, smush these things two together. It doesn't matter as you see yourself in a circumstance. It doesn't matter whether you see yourself as the one who has been wronged or you recognize yourself to be the one who has wronged somebody else. The responsibility to begin making things right falls to you. Either way. Because God cares about all his children. He doesn't want any sheep to go missing, to go wandering. So wherever you're at on the, the, that spectrum of being wronged or wronging someone else, when you realize there's a breach in relationship, first thing we do is we go to the other person. Uh, moving forward, and that's actually the next piece. Where do you go? And the answer is to the other person. You go to the person who has wronged you. Uh, not to other friends, not to that sympathetic person that you know will agree with you when you explain the situation to them, not for the love of all that's good and right to Facebook to let the rest of the world know how offended you were by this person. You go to the person. In other words, no third parties. And this is the second place where this breaks down, right? The first place is, I don't want to go. I want them to come to me. Second place is it breaks down is, okay, maybe I want to go, but not before I make the rounds. I don't want to go to that person until I have gone to somebody else who's going to hear me and is going to affirm me and is going to agree that the other person was wrong and possibly is evil and possibly that they have no soul. Only after I've been affirmed in all that and in all the feelings around my grievance do I maybe want to go to that other person. But here's the problem there, friends. Problem one is when, when you or I are relating a hurt to another person, that other person is, by definition, only hearing your or my experience of those events. And the chances of them agreeing with us in our telling of the story are about 99%. Even if we're trying to be fair, we're trying to be objective, there is no other person sitting there who is able to say, actually, what I, what I meant was this. Or actually, yeah, that was awful of me, and the reason that I did that was because this thing. What, with, without that other person, 
you don't have to be a skilled communicator. You don't have to be deliberately manipulative. You don't have to be trying to tip the scales to get the person in front of you to agree with you. Uh, there's, there's a wonderful verse in Proverbs I didn't put on a slide, but just to paraphrase for you, it, it says, uh, when somebody presents their case, picture here is a courtroom, when somebody presents their case, they sound right until somebody else comes forward and cross-examines. When we are just venting to another person, by definition, it's, it's just us. And of course we sound right. Now, that leads to the second problem inside of this. What happens as we are rehearsing our anger with another person? Does it cause us to chill out and we, you know, I feel so much better now that I've talked about it? Most of the time, no. Most of the time what happens is in rehearsing your anger and having another person listen to you and go, yeah, you're right, that was terrible, they should never have done that. It just reinforces it. And where you came in with a grievance that was maybe a six or seven, it gets enhanced to an eight or a nine. Because now there's somebody who agrees with you in that. And we make the road to reconciliation that much harder by importing a third party into it. We don't help the process. We actually hinder the good work that God would have us do. And so go to the other person, he says. Uh, now, in that, you know, we might say and say honestly, you know, I'm not going to have somebody else reinforce my anger. I'm just confused. I don't know what to do in this. And, and that's a real thing. I hear that. And, and if, if in that confusion, you don't know if you're thinking about this right, if, if you feel you must, man, look for counsel, not agreement, but look for counsel with somebody you find to be wise and somebody who you know has the guts to tell you that you're wrong. And do it with the intention that as soon as you can, you are going to that other person, that this won't be the end of the process for you. Proverbs 26.20 20 says this. It says, without wood, a fire goes out. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. We don't want to add to the fuel. We want as best we can in the Lord's strength to go to that other person, no third parties, and work with that person. Here's the next piece. Go to the other person in private. Just between the two of you, Jesus says. Or maybe think about it this way. Use sensitivity. The spirit in which we come to another matters, doesn't it? I mean, we all know this from our own experience. If somebody comes to you angry, harsh words, swinging the fists, metaphorically speaking, how good are you and I at receiving what they have to say? It's difficult, isn't it? We're immediately on the defensive. We're immediately uh, trying to, to dodge those shots that we feel we're taking. We're immediately striking back with, hey, you're misunderstanding me in this way or in that way. As opposed to a person who comes to you in gentleness and humility and says, hey, I think there might be a problem between us. Can we talk about this? Sensitivity. And, and I mean, maybe the, the biggest way we can do this is simply by keeping it private, 
keeping it no third parties, just between the two of you. There's so much wisdom in this. Jesus is calling us to resolve conflict in a way that will be non-embarrassing to the other person involved, where we're not shaming the other person involved. Because does that bring us closer to reconciliation or move us farther from it? Yeah? It's a great place for us to apply some other words of Jesus, that we might treat others the way that we would want to be treated ourselves. How would you want someone to approach a conflict they're having with you? That's the way that we deal with them. Sensitively and private, not involving third parties, uh, but going to us directly. Uh, there's another myth in, inside of our interpersonal communications that goes something like this. It's, well, if if I'm going to be able to move forward with this person, then I need to be able to vent. I need to be able to give full expression to my anger. Uh, in reality, what usually happens when, when our aim is venting and not sensitivity to the other person, what happens most often is that, again, we make things worse. Uh, you feel a lot better, right? If you are the ventor, you feel great. Oh, glad I got that off my chest. Glad they know how I feel. But how many relationships are crippled by that? In how many relationships does the rift get wider because of that? One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. I think any time we're going into a conversation with somebody where we're, we're talking about a rift in a relationship, it's a good moment to pray the Holy Spirit lets that particular fruit ripen in our lives that we might be controlled and measured in how we speak. Again, in the Proverbs, or wait, in the Psalms? Yeah, I don't know. I'll look it up later. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, but there's a, a beautiful prayer in there that the Lord would set a guard over the psalmist's mouth. Right? We need to pray for that. That we would be guarded in our speech. Sensitive in our actions. Not just thinking about, okay, how can I say what I need to say? But thinking about the person on the receiving end too. If my goal is to reconcile, that person matters. I can't make it all about me. And what I think I want, what I think I need in this situation. So we go to the other person in private and discuss the problem. Jesus says, you go and you point out their fault just between the two of you. Now, think about this too. When people have come to you in the past and they're saying, hey, you wronged me in this way. Uh, how have you appreciated being approached in those situations and how have you not? This is a great thing, I think, for us to consider. How we go about pointing out one's fault. Uh, I know for me, uh, I've appreciated most and I've found most fruitful when I've approached others. 
to try to come in inquiring rather than accusing, to try to come in asking questions instead of making pronouncements about maybe why that person did what they did, but just asking the question, stating the problem and asking the question along with it, saying, hey, I want to tell you that what you said or what you did, it really hurt me. And I'm, I'm hoping you can help me understand where that came from because I want to make things right with you. Right? The way that we approach matters. The way a fault is pointed out matters. And uh, what I've found, and maybe you've found something different, but in my experience at least, the great majority of the time, uh, a person who hears that and it's a word dis delivered in a sensitive way, I mean, unless they just kind of hate me and they decide they want no more relationship, that word gets received. And we're able to move forward inside of that. Uh, the other thing I found is in these kinds of situations, I need to be, and I would say all of us need to be, prepared to hear that other person say, well, the reason I did that was because of this thing that you did. I acted in a hurtful way towards you because I was hurting because of this that maybe involved you or maybe it involved a situation that was totally separate from you. But I, I think we're wise to go into these kinds of conversations with an openness to hearing from the other person that we carry some of the wrong as well. Uh, this is not a scientific study, this is just my personal experience, but I find probably 90% of the time in my interactions like this, and as I've walked other people through interactions like this, there's a part that I need to own to. Almost always, almost always, it is not all that other person's fault. There's a piece of it that was actually me, and I didn't have eyes to see it. And friends, this is part of the gift that Jesus is giving us in this prescription. Because I, I, I know it sounds so difficult, right? You know, I'm hurt, I'm wounded here. I don't want to go to that other person. I don't want to initiate this conversation. I don't want to not involve other people. I don't want any of that. But Jesus doesn't lay this out for us because he hates you and wants you to suffer. He lays this out because he loves you. And he doesn't want any of his sheep, you or the other person, to go wandering because they failed to resolve conflict as it came up. And friends, you know this, don't you? Conflict is inevitable. It is the, the product of more than one person living in the same space, right? As the good book says, where two or three are gathered, there will be conflict. It doesn't really say that, but it's true. This is part of life together, and you and I have to decide right now, not at that moment, what will we do when conflict arises? Jesus says, this is the wise path. Take this path. Go to the other person in private and discuss the problem. And then the next piece of this is in order to reconcile. Go to the other person in private, discuss the problem in order to reconcile. The way he puts it in this text, it says, if they listen, you have won them over. And remember, that is the goal. 
That is the heart of the father who goes after that wandering sheep. The goal is that reconciliation would happen, that we would win one another over, that relationships would not be severed or even be crippled, uh, that we wouldn't maintain a cold distance from one another, but that the relationship would be redeemed. Now, is this guarantee? No, of course not. It always takes two, right? We can't control every part of this. In Romans 12, one of the things Paul says here is live at peace with all people as much as it depends on you, implying it also depends on someone else. But let's just stack the odds in our favor. Can we do that? Let's load the deck such that more often than not, we get wins, not losses, when we find ourselves in a place of conflict with another person. Jesus says, this is the way that you do that. You go to the other person in private, discuss the problem, and you do this with the express purpose of reconciling. Not just of letting that person know how I feel. That's not going to go well. Not with the purpose of, I need this person to know how wrong they were. How about we let the Holy Spirit do that? Not with the person of somebody needs to teach them. Maybe somebody does. But it's not you and it's not today. Because you're the one who is wrong. Your goal, my goal, our goal has to be to reconcile. We do well to ask of our words and actions in these situations. Is this something that will help? Or is this something that will hinder the process of reconciling with another brother or sister? Uh, last point, last part of our jumbo run-on sentence, or actually it's two sentences. But if needed, get help. It says in verse 16, if the person will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. He's quoting there from Deuteronomy. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Again, that's that, uh, that last ditch scenario that God willing we can avoid 99 times out of 100. But if needed, get help. If negotiations break down, if the talk fails, if the person's unwilling to receive it, if you can't seem to come to a place where you can move forward together, get help. Bring somebody else in. Turn preferably, not to an ally that you know already sees things your way. That's not going to help to reconcile. Don't turn to a mutual friend that you know is going to side against you and hopefully disavow them. No, it's not going to help reconcile. Turn to somebody that you know to be wise, to be full of the Holy Spirit, someone who will be honest enough to say to you, ooh, this part over here, that's yours. You're going to have to own that. That's the person that you want to bring into the conversation at this point. And again, with the goal of reconciling with the other person. Hmm. Um, 
note here, of course, that, that this part comes after. There's been a, a personal attempt at reconciliation. Uh, are there exceptions to this? There are. And I, I can think of two places in scripture where, where conflict is handled differently, where it doesn't start with that personal uh, interaction. It starts with others involved. I can think of one scenario that, that I've seen multiple times that, that I would say, okay, we need to maybe reverse the order on that. If, if, for instance, you are a woman who has been abused in a relationship and you're looking for peace or reconciliation, I wouldn't want to see you go in private to the other person first. I'd want to see you start by getting help. And I'm assuming there's been attempts in the past already by the time it's, it's at that point. Uh, but uh, we want to be careful to make sure that a person doesn't experience further harm in this. So it's, it's not an absolute. We can say that because in scripture there's at least two places where the order is changed. But in our ordinary circumstance, getting help comes after. It is after we are are making efforts on our own to reconcile with the other person. Uh, this morning, as, as we reflect on this and as we come to the communion table, uh, I want to invite you to do some hard praying and do some honest soul searching. There's a really good chance that if we've sat, as we sat here this morning, as we're working through this text, that the Holy Spirit has brought to your mind a brother or a sister with whom you need to be reconciled. He's brought to your mind somebody where there's a rift and it needs to be addressed. And it, it might be somebody who's hurt you or it might be somebody that you've hurt and you're aware of the separation there as well. If that is the case, as we pray, as we come to the Lord's table, can I invite and urge you to be reconciled as much as it's within your power to do, be reconciled to that other person, to humble yourself, to call on God's spirit, to meet you in the midst of the circumstance and to bring healing. Only God can bring this kind of healing. Today, there's a possibility, too, that uh, you hear this text and you recognize, you know what, I'm, I'm the sheep. I'm the one that's gone missing. And you need the shepherd to come and to grab you and to pull you back in. Can I invite you, if you are that person, to turn your heart towards Jesus and say to him, I want to be found. I want to be in community with others. I want to be made right with those around me. I need you to find me. I need you to give me the resources to come back in. Uh, you may have experienced this, but it's very possible. Have your body in the room, but your heart is somewhere else. To be physically present, but you're not really here. You have walled yourself off from community with others. It's more than understandable, given all the hurts that we experience in life. But it's not God's best for you. It's not God's best for me. Invite Jesus into that space.
Uh, I want to share one final story as, as we close. It's not typical. It's, I think it's the craziest instance of reconciliation that, that I've ever seen. It was, it was a lot of years ago. Um, I, was, I was a pretty young pastor with pretty robust hair. And um, I had a situation where we had in the same church, actually, they walked into the same Bible study, uh, a young woman uh, and her ex-boyfriend of some years uh, who had, had victimized her sexually. And in the weeks and months that followed the revelation of what had happened between these two, uh, and with some wise and godly people walking alongside them, if you can believe it, there was a reconciliation that happened even there. Uh, of course, the, the woman in the scenario, it was something that she wanted and something that she was willing to pursue. Uh, my fear in that was, you know, how much further hurt is she going to be if this type of thing is pursued, if a reconciliation is something that we go after. Uh, but the healing that she experienced, even in that deep of a trauma, that severe of a violation, the healing that she experienced changed her life. It rewrote the trajectory of her life. She wanted to marry a godly man who loved her, who was tender with her and gentle. And I was so blessed for her because that was not the path that she was on. The grudge, the pain, the hurt that she carried, all rightfully so, it had her on a totally different trajectory. And working through that most difficult of scenarios, it, it saved her life. And I wonder for you, I wonder for you, are there relationships that you have? And maybe it's, it's an offense far less severe, but are there relationships that you have where you would be willing to bet on Jesus and allow him to walk with you and enter into a process of attempting to redeem a relationship with somebody else. Will you bring that to him at the communion table today? Uh, let's pray together.